Man, for the Kennedy Center to Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Faithful Bible Church to Bel Air Church, Dr. D is in the house. Man. I can read your lips. You're saying, praise God. She's saying, praise God. It's a God-given gift that she gives back to God for God's glory, and we are blessed. That's foreshadow for where we're going. It's the point of the sermon. So if you can't hear that, you're not going to be able to hear this. <laughs> but all of it comes, not through our strength, but the truth of God's Word. Why don't we open up our Bibles right now to Exodus? In fact, we are in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, we've been going through the journey of Exodus. And if you have a, a pew Bible in front of you, it's that red book in the pews. If you're in the front row, a little uh, cubby right behind your leg, we're going to page 56. And we're going to read two sections of Scripture First from Exodus 17, 8 through 13, and then chapter 18, 13 through 27. Uh, and once you get there and you look up, let me just give a quick 90-second overview of the whole of the Exodus story in case you've missed it or have forgotten it. Uh, but basically, God's people, before they're a nation, they're a family. And they've been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. God hears their cry of oppression and bondage. God answers their prayer. Uh, shows up to Moses in the burning bush, reveals, first of all, who God is, and equips Moses to be the leader that ultimately leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And yet, the purpose of all of that was to not only have Pharaoh know who God was, but to also eventually to have all the nations of the earth know that God is God and we are not, that there is one Lord of all, the maker of heaven and earth. And so they've gone through now the wilderness. They've parted the Red Sea, God has, and now they're on the other side. They're in the wilderness. They complain. They forget. They think they had it better in slavery. You get the people out of bondage, and you can't necessarily get the bondage out of people immediately, and God wants to do a work in and through them, and they have received the gift and grace of God's manna from heaven. They've received the gift of water flowing from a rock, and here we are at this very significant moment in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 13, and then 18 on. Let me read. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the sun set, and Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. Now chapter 18, verse 13, the next day Moses sat as judge for the people, while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire about God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes 
and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You should represent the people before God and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. You should also look for able men among all the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go to their home in peace. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. All right, any Star Wars nerds here? Like me? So it's safe place. Any Star Wars nerds I'll ask again? Okay, it's safe place, right? So... Uh, Star Wars, like this massive universe, right? This massive story, it goes back uh, movie after movie after movie. And you've got to know that if you're a Star Wars nerd, nerd, that whenever you see a scene and a character, there's so much going on behind the scenes than what you see right there in that moment. In the same way, we're going to see here that this is about so much more than Moses and Aaron and her and the, uh, Amalek and, and, and Jethro. There's so much more going on. How many of you, like me, when The Force Awakens came out, I mean, I lost it. I lost it when the trailer hit before the film got to the theaters. In fact, there was this moment, and I heard his voice. The stories are true. And like in that moment, my whole childhood was validated. <laughs> and I got so emotional. And then I saw him, Han, next to Chewie. And then when I saw the film, and I saw the Millennium Falcon, and I knew the whole backstory of that ship. How many, you know, what was it, parsecs it took to do the... 12, what was it? 12 parsecs? Yeah, we know. Nerds. Insider language. The fastest ship on the planet. That's the point I'm trying to make, right? You see these people come onto the screen, and if you know the backstory, you're a Star Wars nerd, all of a sudden, like this whole backstory begins to come to the surface, and you are overwhelmed with the grandeur and the glory of what's before you, and there's people who have no idea what's going on. They're like, who's that dude? What's that big cat? What is that sound that's annoying, right? You see, if you don't know the backstory, it's just a scene. Oh, but Star Wars nerds are like, oh, is that a Sith Lord? It is. Oh. You know what I'm talking about? No. Some people are like, what? Who is this guy? This is my first time here. I thought I was at church. What? And some people are like, I know. I feel you. Yes. 
You see in these grand universes that we create, the massive stories that we create when we understand the full backstory and the history and the characters and the lineage and the good versus evil and, you know, the, the good side of the, the light side of the force, the dark side of the force. When we see these little scenes, we have context for what's happening. There's so much more meaning, so much more significance that it leaves us in awe and wonder. And if that's true for things that we create, films and books and plays, How much more true is it when we get to these scenes in Scripture? In fact, how many of you know the name Amalek? Uh, A lot fewer hands than uh, the Star Wars nerds that that raise their hands. Lord help us. And and, and in actual fact, and I've I've read Scripture from beginning to end, there's these moments where where I miss things and I forget things and 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 it doesn't appear to me. And in preparing for this, all of a sudden I began to realize the backstory of this name Amalek. And you've got to understand, before we zoom in and we talk about the individual characters of Moses and Aaron or Hur and Jethro and what they can teach all of us today… I've got to take a step back and give you a little backstory of Amalek. You see, after this moment, which by the way, is a moment where God's people at this point, it's before it's a country, this is not a geopolitical thing, it's a family, it is God's people rescued from the nation of Israel, there is a tribe, a group of people, uh, some translations say the Amalekites, wage war against God's people. Now, after this fact, of which God responds in a very significant way, there's no group of people, no nation that wars against God's people more than the Amalekites do. You see it uh, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book. You can see all the way through. King David fights them. You get all the way to Queen Esther, like centuries later, the name Haman you might be familiar with this, this evil leader in the palace. He is a descendant of the Amalekites. And when you understand this backstory, you've got to understand that the Amalekites are the antithesis of God's way of life. They're the antithesis of love. They're the antithesis of justice. They're the antithesis of peace. And I know many people who read Scripture and want nothing to do with God because there's war. And you've got to understand that when you understand the backstory and you get to scenes like this where there's a battle, you've got to understand that at no point in the entire biblical record does God initiate violence. God is not the initiator of war. There's been awful things that have been done in the name of God. But God clearly throughout all of Scripture never initiates injustice, never initiates violence, and never initiates uh, anything of that matter. In fact, we see right here in the beginning of this verse 8 of 17, it says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim, an unprovoked act of war against God's people. Now, you've got to understand, this was so stupid, if I can say it plainly. I mean, surely they heard about what happened in Egypt. Surely they heard that Moses took a staff and put it against the Nile River. It turned to blood. Surely they heard that uh, the firstborn in Egypt died. Surely they would have said, hey, before we go to war against this group of people, what are we going to do about the firstborn thing? I mean, the like, uh, you know, war cabinet planning committee 
kind of overlooked the fact that like locusts and all these things, you know, came in and just overwhelmed the Egyptians. And there's a reason why. It's because at this moment, you not only understand what the Amalekites do moving forward, you've got to understand that they actually have a backstory. In fact, you can trace it all the way back. And the reason why this translation says Amalek, he's already passed away many, many centuries before. But it's a shorthand way of speaking to a man, Amalek, who had a granddad named Esau who had a brother named Jacob. Those brothers were at war with one another. Their father, Isaac, Isaac's father, Abraham, these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the deceiver. And from his lineage came a group of people that wanted at all costs, for Jacob's descendants to be destroyed. There was this spirit about a group of people that were completely antithetical to the spirit of what God longed for people to live. But you can trace that all the way back even further and see two brothers way before that, Cain and Abel, representing this division, actually, that goes through all of our human hearts. We have a little bit of Cain, we've got a little bit of Abel, we've got a little bit of Jacob, we've got a little bit of Esau, we've got a little bit of Israel, we've got a little bit of Amalek in us. And in fact, you've got to understand that this this backstory is the narrative of all of humanity. This is not a geopolitical thing, this is not a thing that is about people, groups, or nations. This is about when things are antithetical to the, the goodness and the, and the joy of God. And we live in a world where we long for justice, do we not? You see on the news when somebody, you know, drives a car through a, a crowd of demonstrators, we say, that, that's evil. You think about people who allow genocide, you say, that's evil. You think about people who buy and sell humans, we say, that's evil. And God says that my justice always prevails. And you've got to understand that whole backstory to get to this moment right now. So open your Bibles back up. Take a look. This fascinating scene, this this famous scene. It says, Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. All right, what's Moses going to teach us in this moment? He's learned his lesson. We can't do things on our own power. We can't do things on our own might. We're being attacked. Uh, The enemy is overwhelming us. Uh, Even if you personalize it so much, uh, the things, my addictions in my life that are overwhelming me, my bad habits that turn me away from God, this broken relationship that, that just absolutely destroys anything good in me. When those things overwhelm us, Moses says to us today, don't do it on your own strength. He doesn't just say, Joshua, go out and fight, and I'm going to cheer you on. He says, Joshua, go out, and I'm going to go stand, and I'm going to take this this staff, this rod that God has given me. If you were here with us last week, I reminded us that this this staff, this this massive piece of of, of wood, uh, is representative of God's power, God's might, God's authority, God's judgment, God's justice. 
And when he holds this thing above his head, he is saying that it is God's justice and power and might and authority that's going to prevail over every other nation that doesn't want to worship that God, our God, the true God, as king. And he's holding it up. You heard the story. And he gets tired and he lowers it down. And whenever he lowers it down, in a sense representative of doing things on our own might, our own strength, the enemy prevails. And he raises it back up and then God's people prevail. And here's what I want you to do. I I want you to personalize this. I I want you to think of what's one thing in your life that God has given you. Don't make it your goals, your dreams, uh, your things, but, but think about something that you truly believe is a gift that God has given you. Maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's the fact that you're a parent. Maybe it's the fact that you're a brother or a sister or a daughter or a son. Maybe it's that you're a grandparent. Maybe you have uh, this opportunity in the environment in which you work in to be an ambassador for Christ, somebody to uh, be a light in darkness. I mean, think about one thing that you feel like absolutely God has entrusted this thing to me. Again, not your dreams, not all about you. We could easily go down that route, but what's something in your life that you feel like, you know, when I think about it, God has entrusted me this thing And I know and I acknowledge it's a gift from God. You know, I think about this. I think about this pulpit. This is not mine. This is not mine at all. And yet I get up here every Sunday. Us pastors get up here every Sunday and we preach. And we know that we preach not our own strength, not our own might, but it is a gift that God gives us. And it's not just us, but it's through the power of God's word. And so, you know, I feel like this pulpit is something in my life that God has entrusted to me that I want to hold up. I mean, I want to hold it up, and I don't want to do it in my own strength, and I want to hold it up so that God would be glorified, that God's word would prevail, that people's hearts would be pierced to the core, that it would all be about him. But I want you to personalize it. Maybe this is so distracting. And my wife was like, please tuck in that shirt so your belly doesn't show. Please do that. And so I wore the longest shirt I had and the longest sweatshirt I have. And so, man, this is super distracting. Close your eyes because this is not about me. All right, I want you to close your eyes, please. I'm good, right? Am I good? Okay. Personalize it. What's one thing in your life that you are holding up in this moment that you feel like God has entrusted to you? Man, I've got this relationship in my life. And they don't yet know Jesus. And I feel like I'm the only one who can share Christ with them. Maybe some of you are like, gosh, my kids are wearing me out. And yet they're a gift. I want to steward that well. Maybe some of you are like, man, my parents are wearing me out. But yeah, I guess that is a gift. So I want to steward that well. Maybe some of you are like, man, I am in an industry, I'm in a business, I'm in a workplace, I'm in a company, I'm in a group of friends where it is completely unpopular to be a person of faith, completely unpopular to be a follower of Jesus. And yet I feel like God has given me this opportunity in that setting to be a voice for the voiceless, to be a person of peace, 
Please personalize it. What's one thing in your life that you feel like God has given you that is an absolute gift? And if you're like me, it is exhausting to keep holding it up. Man, there's moments where your sister, your brother, like, oh, I just, can they be adopted away? <laughs> I've got to love them. I've got to, you know, care for them. It's exhausting. Maybe some of you are in this place where you, you've got people looking to you. It is exhausting to keep having integrity. It is exhausting to be a person that speaks the truth in all situations, even when it's not convenient. Maybe some of you are in places where you've got an opportunity to be a voice against injustice. Maybe some of you have opportunities where you can come along people who are marginalized, and you have a platform, you have a role. You know, you've got something, but after a while, it just, it gets heavy, and it weighs on you, and it's like every Instagram photo from the gym that goes viral when somebody lifts it up and they're like, you know, oh, you know, like everybody likes those things because we like watching people go like this, but sometimes that's us. Now, how many of you in this moment, when you've personalized it, Wally, <laughs> bro, I told you not to come up here. Now, how many of you in that moment, when you're holding your thing up, thank you, thank you, you know, how many of you in that moment were thinking about the person next to you and what they were holding up? Because I was so overwhelmed by what I'm holding up that I kind of blacked out for a bit and I didn't even consider what you were holding up. There's only one Moses in the story. Yes, there's moments where we are Moses out there in our world, but when we gather together as a community, we all can't be Moses. And the point of the story is that I'm not Moses. I'm not Moses. Even though I'm holding this up, I'm not Moses. Even though they're like holding my arms up, I'm not Moses. God is calling us to be Moses out in the world and to be Aaron and her when we gather together as a people. Aaron and her, they had things that they were holding up in their own life, responsibilities that they had. When I read that narrative over and over and over, it doesn't say anywhere specifically that Moses says, Aaron, help me, her, help me. They step forward. They step forward. And there's moments where we feel like, I can't cross that boundary After the 9 o'clock service, there was somebody who came up to me and said, I wanted more than anything to come forward and help you, Drew, but I felt like I couldn't go up there. There's so many moments in our life where we look at somebody and we say, gosh, it looks like they need help accomplishing what God wants them to do, and yet who am I? How can I help? Should I even? I don't know. Maybe it's, it might be awkward. It might be weird. They might, they might turn me away. You see, God is calling us to hear Moses, to be willing to take other people's help, 
But God's also calling us to be like Aaron, to be like her. We rush forward. We say, how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? How can I love you? How can I support you in what you are doing? So can we give it up for Aaron? Are your arms getting tired? <laughs> so, so, wait, hold up. Your arm's so big. And no, it's not. So can we get some more help up here? Because, no? We're good. Can we give thanks to this group? Oh, no, you want to come on up? Come on up. Now look, come on up. Now here's the deal. Now here's the deal. I said, the, I said, I said the, to Wally, and you didn't listen to me, bro. I said, whatever you do, don't come up front. Whatever you do. I don't know what you were talking about. Yeah, you didn't know what I was talking about. Look, here's the deal, church. Look left and look right. Don't look up front. Look around you. It's not up here. It's what's next to you. There are people that are lifting up things in their life that need your help. They need your support. They need your prayer. They need your love. They need your encouragement. And yet if we walk in thinking, how can somebody help me? How can this church help me? We'll just be a bunch of exhausted people at the end of the day. So can we give thanks for this group here as they grab a seat? But the story goes on. It moves on to Exodus 18. Open those Bibles back up. Take a look at this. It's so fascinating. And I intentionally did this, but take a look at 18.1. We didn't read this earlier. Chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. Let's pause there. Now, it's easy, and I, I did this for many years. I read that. Oh, priest. Oh, priest. Like, oh, he's a, quote, believer. Oh, priest. He's a leader in the church. Oh, priest. He believes in God. No. Jethro was a man who had no idea who God was. He lived in a world where they worshiped other gods, many different gods. And he wasn't just a believer in a variety of gods. He was actually a leader, a priest, somebody who helped others connect with other gods. This man wasn't born into the heritage of Israel. This man lived his whole life not hearing about who God was and who we can be in return. And look what it happens after Moses tells him the stories of what God has done. In verse 10, chapter 18, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, that's the personal name of God, who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because he delivered the people from the Egyptians. This is the first time in the Exodus story where somebody makes a choice to now believe in God for the first time. Until that moment, there was nobody who went from believing one thing to now putting their faith and trust in the maker of heaven and earth that is God. 
And what's so remarkable is that immediately after that, he looks and sees what Moses is doing, this, this famous leader, this one who has had such a track record, who, you know, led them out of slavery, who uh, was the representative before the people and God and before Pharaoh, who was the one that led him through the Red Sea and who strikes the rock and water comes out, who raised his hand and it prevailed all these things. And he looks at Moses and says, come on, man, you're doing it wrong. And what's so remarkable in that moment is he takes all of his background, all of his organizational guru-ness, he's like the Peter Drucker, like the Tim Ferriss of like the ancient world, and he says, here's how you can do it better. You're wearing yourself out day and night. People are coming to have you determine the disputes and, and be kind of like a judge before them. And all these people are just waiting for you. You're the cog in the system. And how does Moses respond? He says, me and I, like 10 different times. Well, it's me that should do this. And they come to me, and I'm the one. And, and Jethro says, no. That'll never work. And he gives them a structure to multiply impact. And though it says men here in the translation, you've got to know that when you look at the full course of Scripture, that it's not just men, it's women as well. And it's not just in the New Testament, it's in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament as well, that we have great leaders that are both men and women. And it comes to fulfillment, you see, in the book of Acts, actually at Pentecost, where God pours out God's Spirit, and there is this amazing truth of Joel, the prophet in the Old Testament that is quoted, that says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, both men and women. And it's this remarkable truth that Jethro, this new believer, says, Moses, the only way God's people are going to flourish is if you equip other people to be leaders as well. And he says, have them be over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And no doubt there was people who were waiting in line to hear Moses who were tasked with now being leaders, were now tasked with being servants. And here's the great, amazing truth of what God wants to do. First of all, when you come to Christ, you don't have to wait like 10 years before you can contribute to this community. You know, there's not like this like uh, cooling off period where, you know, you got to prove yourself till we hear any of your ideas. No. The moment you come to Christ and the Spirit fills in you, you might say, you know, I've got this idea and I know you've been around for 63 years, but what if you tried it this way? That could absolutely transform this community. And so that's the joy of what it means to be part of this community is that every single one of you have an opportunity to contribute to what God is doing through this church. And it's the reality of, it's not just me, it's not just the pastors, it's not just staff, it's not just deacons, it's not just life group leaders, it's not just elders, it is all of us that are called to do God's work on this campus and this city and around the globe. And so I love Dr. D singing that song. I love that truth. That we would walk into this community not just saying, who can serve me, who can help me, but how can I help? How can I love somebody? How can I serve somebody? How can I be like an Aaron? How can I be like a Hur? How can I be like a Jethro helping Moses? How can I be like those many people that were asked by Moses to serve? How can I be part of the prayer team? How can I sign up for a life length group? Oh, well, you can talk to Rebecca right afterwards right now. Uh, how can I volunteer in the student ministries? 
How can I lead a global service team? How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And yet, you have needs as well. So this isn't to stuff your needs. It's to acknowledge that you have needs and you have an ability to meet needs around you. Now, how does Aaron, how does her, how does Moses, how does Jethro, how do we get the strength to do that? Well, I believe it's the same strength that enabled Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to serve in the way that he did. I've read his many books, and he constantly pointed to the power of Jesus. It wasn't his strength that made him be a drum major for justice. He didn't do it on his own. Yes, people surround him, but ultimately, the core of his identity, the core of his strength was the resurrected Jesus. You think about this imagery of of Moses lifting up his hands, getting too exhausted, and then falling, but think about Jesus on the cross. Arms stretched. Holding more than just a staff. Holding all of humanity in actual fact in his arms. Feeling the weight of not just a piece of wood, but the weight of all of our brokenness, the weight of evil, the weight of sin upon himself. And bomb after bomb after bomb of God's enemy continue to rain down upon him, the excruciating pain on the cross, the spiritual reality of being separated from God the Father for our sake, for our love. He was holding you, and no one came to his rescue. There was no Aaron, there was no her, there was no Moses, there was no one. And with all the weight on the shoulders of his arms, he stayed. He didn't waver. With the greatest display of strength and love, he held on. And because he held on, God's justice prevailed. Because on the cross, your sin, my sin, I've got a little bit of Cain, I got a little bit of Abel. Got a little bit of Jacob, got a little bit of Esau, got a little bit of Jethro, a little bit of Amalek. God's justice prevailed, defeated death. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we, you, me, we might become the righteousness of God. When I consider that, and how Jesus held on. And how he didn't abandon me then, he's surely not going to abandon me now. That's how I step forward and say, how can I help you? And it's when I rely on my own strength and when I get my eyes off the cross that all I think about is, man, what am I holding up and who's going to help me? But the more that I open up God's word, the more you open up God's word, and you see Jesus holding on for you. Who says, I see your needs more than anybody else and I'm going to sustain you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to use people in your life. I'm going to use things that you can't even imagine. I'm going to surround you. But also in the midst of that, would you know that you have people around you that I can use you to help them, to lift them up, to serve them, to encourage them. But this is what we're called to. This is the great joy of what God is inviting us into. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave lives in you. 
If you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Some of you can be like Jethro today. Maybe you've come in here, don't know what to do with Jesus. You've never put your faith and trust in him. Today, you can say, the Lord, he is greater than all other gods. I trust in him. I believe in him. Scripture says in that moment, God's spirit dwells in you. You are now part of the family. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this moment as we gather and worship. Would we remember and would the image in our mind be nothing greater than Jesus, you on the cross, holding us out of love, victorious, not as a victim. And Jesus, I thank you that you sustain us, you support us, you love us, and you call us to do the same for others. Would we be a voice for the voiceless? Would we be empowered by your spirit to care for those on the margins? God, would we just live a life that you lived, laying our lives down for each other? Jesus, we thank you for your love, and it's your name we pray, and we say together, amen.